Citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom But they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing Nothing but the thought of you I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, -face. and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you're watching on DirecTV, channel 378, the NRB Network, or if you're listening to replays of Heart of the Matter on AM820, The Truth, we welcome you. I feel like I'm surrounded by beautiful art objects. Do you notice something different about the show today? We'll be talking about that in a second. Uh, if you can't watch Heart of the Matter on regular television, you can go to www.hotm.tv and you can watch all of our programs in a couple of convenient ways. Streaming video through our extensive archives and there's also YouTube clips by the hundreds, 1,500 of them I believe or more. I was a born-again Mormon moving toward Christian authenticity. The book's available at www.bornagainmormon.com at utlm.org, Christian Gift and Bible, and at Lifeway Christian Bookstores. Every week we read the Bible verse by verse, meeting at the University of Utah on Sunday afternoons from 2.30 to 3.30 p.m. All are welcome. Go to uh, calvarycampus.com for more information, like times and locations. And if you're in the Salt Lake area while you're driving to the University of Utah, or if you're in your car on Sunday at 1 p.m. to 2 p.m., uh, AM820, The Truth, replays Heart of the Matter uh, from 1 to 2. It's a great radio station, AM820, The Truth. They have very good programming. So check them out on Sunday if you want to hear replays of this show. In Genesis 12:13, the Lord says, Speaking of the nation of Israel, and I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Check out Heart for Israel products, which I'm surrounded by right now, at www.hotm.tv. They are gorgeous uh, olive wood products that we offer, and they, by purchasing them, they directly support not only the nation of Israel, but Aletheia Ministries, and then it also benefits you because you get a very good product at a very good price compared to where you could get these things in other places in the world. So we have a nativity scene here, which is beautiful, handcrafted, and then uh, Derek's moving in on that. As he moves around the table, I'll just follow him. He comes over to these praying hands, which are gorgeous olive wood products. And then uh, as he moves over, we have some camels. And, you know, I don't know if you can tell from the screen, but those things are really quite beautiful. And then we have the Holy Bible here, which is covered in olive wood and uh, uh, a, more of a mantelpiece. Probably not for your scripture study, but it's a beautiful mantelpiece. 
So you can go to hotm.tv, uh, and if you're looking to support the ministry, you can't necessarily do it because you have a budget for Christmas or whatever your needs are. You can do some of your shopping and also help support uh, Aletheia Ministries and the Nation of Israel. We also have some other products that Derek's going to show you right now. This is a small uh, manger scene. Uh, and then this is a beautiful piece. It is the, uh, the Last Supper. And then behind that, he's pulling back and is going to show you a bunch of uh, beautiful uh, handcrafted um, olive wood products for your Christmas tree. It's just a way for us to, we tried to think of the most reasonable way and, uh, that we can support Israel, we can support the ministry, and we can support you. So there's some of the products. Check them out. Let's look at this spot really quickly to remind you, and then we'll come back and talk more. Okay, uh, next week we have a big unveiling uh, of an area of our ministry we're very excited about, the premiere of Girl at the Gateway Theaters in downtown Salt Lake City, when, when Monday night, December 6th from 7 to 8 p.m., who everybody's invited but get there early. We only have one theater reserved. Light refreshments will be served, and we'll have a short panel discussion. Andy Wiebe, who's a Christian filmmaker, will sit on the panel to discuss the film. Pastor... Uh, France Davis, Calvary Baptist Church, adjunct professor uh, at the University of Utah, Susan Ebert, social worker and counselor at the Christian Counseling Centers of Utah, and Maximilian Werner, author and writing professor at the University of Utah and Westminster College, will be sitting on the, the panel. We'll have the director and the actors there, and it's a film called Girl, and it's exceptional in helping girls and teenagers understand the topic of so let's look at a quick teaser about the movie. Mother says you only answer prayers from obedient and chaste girls. If that's the case, I'm screwed. Right, wrong. some reason I think you'll help me. So here's my confession.
Again, this coming Monday night, December 6th, 7 to 8 p.m., the Gateway Movie Theaters, downtown Salt Lake City. Be there at 6.30, 6.45. You want to get a good seat. It seems like Elizabeth Smart recently came home temporarily from her LDS mission in Paris in order to testify at the trial of her alleged kidnapper, rapist, uh, Brian David Mitchell. Uh, speaking of her captivity in Mitchell's care, Elizabeth at one point said, quote, I felt like prostitutes had a better life than I did. Um, I told him I was just a little girl. A 14-year-old girl against a grown man doesn't even out so much, end quote. The newspaper stated that Mitchell would constantly remind her that her kidnapping was, quote, the work of God. Speaking of Mitchell, Elizabeth added, quote, He said I was very lucky and that I was being saved from the world, that I had been called by God to be his wife, end quote. I feel very bad for Elizabeth Smart for having to have gone through this and for having to continue to relive it. But what is difficult to understand is why she is out on an LDS mission when it was from the very roots of this faith she's now sharing that her alleged abductor drew his ideas. Uh, what do I mean by that? 33% of the founding prophet Joseph Smith's wives were in their teens. He had 14-year-old wives, just like Elizabeth Smart. LDS author Todd Compton wrote in his book, In Sacred Loneliness, quote, In the group of Smith's well-documented wives, 11... 33% were 14 to 20 years old when they married him. Compton continues, quote, The teenage representation is the largest, though the 20-year and 30-year groups are comparable, which contradicts the Mormon, the Mormon folk wisdom that sees the beginnings of polygamy as an attempt to care for older, unattached women. These data suggest that sexual attraction was an important part of the motivation for Smith's polygamy. In fact, the command to multiply and replenish the earth was part of the polygamy theology. So non-sexual marriage was generally not in the polygamous program as Smith taught it. Mitchell was an active Latter-day Saint. He learned all of this, got all these ideologies from being an active Latter-day Saint. Mitchell even played the role of Satan in the LDS temple, uh, theatrical representations of the beginning of the fall when he was an active Latter-day Saint. From a seed sprouts a tree. From the tree falls the fruit. From the fruit comes a seed, and the cycle of sickness goes on and on and on. Let's have a word of prayer. God in heaven, we love you and need you, and uh, me being a fallible man need you especially because of uh, what we do here, uh, just so that I can communicate what you want and I won't lose my temper with calls or whatever it might be. We pray for our audience. We pray for people who are seeking, who are searching for truth, that you will open their eyes. And we pray for our staff, our volunteers, and everything else that you're doing in this state and around the world, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, we will talk about temples, part one. For clarity's sake, let's go back, way back, to the temp tabernacle of ancient Israel. 
Why do I want to go back there? Because this tabernacle, tabernacle is actually referred to as the temple of the Lord in 1 Samuel 1.9. This tabernacle was portable and very small, and it consisted of three compartments, an outer court, an inner court, and a holy of holies, or the place where God would temporarily visit. The measurements, the rites, and the rituals in the tabernacle are laid out plainly in the book of Leviticus. You can read them even today. These rites included washing the priests and offering animal and vegetable sacrifices to God in a place of very specific uh, and symbolic furnishings. There was one tabernacle and one only. No matter how many children of Israel there were, there was always one tabernacle. Just like there is one Savior. Just like there is one God. Hundreds of years later, King David wanted to build God a permanent tabernacle or a temple. But being a man of blood, as it were, a man of violence, God forbade him to do it himself, but said that his son Solomon could build it when he was gone. So before his death, David had, with all of his might, provided materials in great abundance for the building of a temple on a single summit, one place, Mount Moriah, which is on the east side of the city of Jerusalem. Genesis tells, that, tells us that this is the mount where Abraham went to offer up Isaac uh, uh, to God. Now remember, there was and is only one uh, temple for all of Israel, and it was this temple of Solomon's, uh, David's son, that he erected this place in great splendor. Even today, there is still only one in one site. I know I've emphasized that. Uh, and the Jews recognize that as such. No matter how many Jews are on this earth, there is only one temple site. For this reason, even the Orthodox Jews today have gone uh, without making the, the sacrifices that are required in the book of Leviticus for them to sacrifice because they do not have control of the temple mount location. If many temples were okay, the Jews would open, just open up another one on another mount somewhere. But there's only one temple because there's only one God, because there's only one Savior. Do you get it? Now, in 1 Kings, it tells us that Solomon's temple was put together under the direction of some very skilled Phoenician builders and workmen in the fourth year of Solomon's reign, or about 480 years after the Exodus. The sacredness of this building was vitally important. According to 1 Kings 6-7, there was no sound of a hammer or an axe or a tool of iron as this temple was being constructed and it arose from the ground. No sound. That's symbolic. Then, seven and a half years after it had begun, the temple was completed in its, all of its beauty and architectural magnificence. But the edifice was so holy that it sat vacant and empty, unused for 13 years there on Mount Moriah. That's how sacred this temple was and emblematic of the one Lord who was going to come. At the close of these 13 years, they made grand preparations for the greatest uh, dedication of this temple. When the Ark of the Covenant 
which by the way, just as a side note, the Ark of the Covenant is not in the LDS temple here in Salt Lake. The LDS do not have control of the Ark of the Covenant. The LDS do not, no matter what myths abound, do not have the Ark of the Covenant. It was solemnly brought from the tabernacle and it was deposited in this sacred place uh, where the temple was built. It was then that the glory cloud of God, the Shekinah glory of God, filled that house, filled that house, which too is a mere picture or representation of God when he would fill his carnate son in the future. That's the picture of the temple. This new permanent temple consisted of a porch or an entrance, as I said, the outer court, a holy place and the most holy place. There were no endowments in this temple on Mount Moriah. There were no baptisms for the dead. There were no ceilings or marriages for time and all eternity of couples or of families. There was just that outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, a high priest would once a year go inside, place the blood that represented the blood, and God would come down and he would uh, he would authenticate that offering. This temple erected by Solomon was many times pillaged uh, during the course of history. And finally, it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and who burned the temple and he took all of its valuables and he took them to Babylon. In an effort to regain the Jews' favor, Herod the Great, about 10 years before Jesus was born, maybe 18, I can't remember, Herod the Great came in and said, I want to gain the favor of the Jews. I'm going to build a temple again on this mount. And um, so Solomon's temple was, uh, not Solomon's temple, Herod's temple was completed about 65 AD, and it was not allowed to sit there very long. You see, prior to the completion of that temple, God had sent another temple to the earth. It was his son, his perfect temple, in which he dwelled, and he dwelled inside his son in that perfect temple. Okay, so we have a bunch of different temples going on here. Within 40 years of Jesus being crucified, uh, he predicted the temple would be overthrown and the Romans uh, took over the city of Jerusalem. And, uh, and though Titus, leading the Romans, wanted to save the temple, it didn't matter. They still uh, took the thing down to nothing. It was completely blown away by uh, 70 AD and it was never rebuilt. The summit of Mount Moriah on which the temple once stood is now occupied by the Haram Esh Sharif and it's known as the sacred enclosure. Uh, however, though Muslim controlled, uh, it's a very important spot and it is a very important spot not only to Jews today, but even when Christ comes, it will be an, an important spot. Now, to Christians. The New Testament uses the word temple in a completely different way now. Okay, why? Because Jesus came and he gave the temple a completely different meaning. Let me tell you about that. First, it's figuratively used for the body of Christ. John 2, 19 talks about that. That's interesting, isn't it? But it makes sense because everything in the Old Testament is a type or a picture for Christ. So where the Jews would come to a physical place to worship God and offer sacrifice in the pre-Messiah years, once he came and offered himself as the final sacrifice, it only makes sense that now believers in him go to spiritual places to worship Christ, to know Christ. And that's with, and I'll tell you what those spiritual places are. 
But no longer is there a, a physical edifice needed anymore because Jesus became that edifice for us. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, believers are called the temple of God. God does not any longer dwell in uh, buildings made with hands, but he dwells in people who have been spiritually cleansed by the blood of Christ. You see, the reason 1 Kings 6-7 uh, says that no sound of a hammer or an axe or any of that was used on the ancient temple of Israel. It's because it was symbolic of the final temple of God or the spiritual place within each of us where no one can see or hear the work going on for the erection of the temple within us, of the Spirit of God. It is a silent thing. That's why it was pictured in the Old Testament in the same way. We are created as new creatures in Christ and not in the materialistic a sense that men want to make temples. Uh, the true temple today is without the constructs or the constructions of men. Ancient Israel's temple was a singular picture with God's ultimate end in mind. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, listen what it says. It says, For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In 2 Corinthians 5.1, it says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. No longer does God just visit men temporarily in the temple of stone as he did in the Holy of Holies, but as I said, because of Christ's blood, he's in everyone who believes and has been born again. Ephesians tells us that the church, meaning the collective body of believers now, uh, are designated as a temple of the Holy God. So here's another application of a temple. Re listen to Ephesians 2.19. It says, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation, foundation, foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple of the Lord, in whom you are also built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. That verse tells us right now that one we together as a body of believers with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we make up this temple now. That is where the Holy Spirit, the habitation of God dwells, is amongst many people, not in buildings made of stone. So God's temple today is a corporate body of believers fitly framed together, growing into a temple of the Lord and builded together for what? It says, a habitation of God through the Spirit. So we have a double whammy as believers relative to temples today. We are his temple. He individually resides in us. And then collectively, we form a temple wherein he stands among his believers. Finally, the book of Revelation says that heaven is also called a temple. So quickly, this is the biblical perspectives of temples today. You ready? First, in ancient Israel, we had a tabernacle. Then King Solomon's glorious edifice that he created. Then we had Herod the Great's splendorific construction. Then we have the Lord's body itself, a, tab a temple where God dwelled. Then we have, it's in the body of individual believers. Then we have a corporate body of believers today forming the temple. And then ultimately we have a temple in heaven. Okay, all of those are the New Testament application and old of what a temple is. 
with this understanding of temples and their biblical place and purpose, why do the LDS have temples today? What motivated Joseph Smith to come up with the idea of modern-day temples? And from where did he get all these things that they do in their temples, since they obviously cannot be found anywhere in the book of Leviticus? These questions bring us somewhat to the crossroads of religious history, my friend, because you see the good news carried forth and expressed in the Bible that Jesus came and saved sinful men from certain eternal death was lost uh, many times over, but in Joseph Smith's time particularly, was lost when he said, good news is not enough. We are going to make an earthly empire, a kingdom of righteous people. It started to focus less on God's righteousness and started to focus more on men and women's righteousness. And by, by turning from the good news and focusing on the betterment of man, on improving society, on bringing heaven down to earth, and ultimately turning men and women into gods and goddesses, Joseph looked to another source of inspiration than the Bible when he concocted his temple rites. Freemasonry is where he got it. You see, this was the aim of, free, of Freemasonry all along, to make men and society better, okay? Now, there is absolutely no evidence of any ancient origin of Freemasonry, no matter what people will try to suggest to you today. What we do know about the Freemasons is that they employ allegorical myths within their Freemasonry circles to try and create for themselves an ancient history so as to look as though they're, often, uh, that they're authentic. Uh, but does that sound familiar? But there is no history that they have. Some say Masonry is tied to Solomon's temple and building it for ancient Israel. Complete myth. Some say Euclid and Pythagoras and the Rosicrucians and Moses and the Essenes or the Druids or the Gypsies started it. All myth. Many maintain that it came from the Knights Templar and uh, some of their origin. There could be something there, but still, we think that's myth. Uh, there are dozens and dozens of theories about the origins of Freemasonry, but what do we know? This is what we know. The earliest records we have of Freemasonry and their guilds or their groups date back to around earliest 1390. Okay, And you see, these were guys who had jobs and they were stonemasons, and they were free to roam about and do their job wherever they wanted to do it, okay? And they molded, and they carved, and they, they cut stones from rocks and cathedrals, and they were allowed to travel at will and freely, and so there were Freemasons. Now, generally speaking, at that time, the only other profession that was free to roam were the clergy, so this was a highly valued and desired and enviable position to have, to be free and to be roaming about applying your trades. And the only way a person who could become one of these Freemasons was to become an apprentice of a master mason, okay, who would take you under his wing and he would secretly teach you in confidence the tricks of the trade to be a Freemason. This apprenticeship almost ensured a secure, creative, liberating lifestyle for those fortunate enough to learn the secrets of the craft. Therefore, the secrets of the craft were carefully guarded. They didn't want everybody learning them because then their liberty and their ability to roam about would be lost. 
So all of those factors led to the stonemasons forming into cliques or groups or guilds to protect themselves. And uh, they protected themselves through secrecy. They protected themselves from the outside world through secret oaths and secret handshakes and secret covenants and promises and passwords. On the east side of the LDS temple here in Salt Lake City, above the door, there is a hand-cut figure out of stone shows two hands in a Masonic grip above a door. It's right there outside. And illustrating the origins and the secret Masonic origins of the Mormon temple rites. In order to protect their groups or guild secrets, the Masons also implemented promises of retribution for anybody who revealed the oaths to the outside world. They would include, hey, if you tell anybody who's not part of the group what our secrets are and you show them the secret handshakes and stuff, boom, you're going to die. There were promises of retribution. Now, when I went through the LDS temple back in the 90s, those promises were still there. I mean, that you, you, you would get, lose your life through different ways and you actually showed what those ways were when you were in the temple, how you would lose your life if you revealed the secrets that were done in the LDS temple. In 1990, they changed that. Nevertheless, they took it straight from the Masons. Um, I'm going to skip a lot of history right now. Uh, I'm going to jump ahead because of time and just tell you that all these Masonic themes, the Scottish allowed a non-practicing Mason, a guy who didn't have the tools, it wasn't a stonemason, into one of their guilds. That opened it up for other men to then belong to this fraternal organization who weren't stonemasons to begin with. That made masonry and their guilds and their groups pop up all over the place that were just more social, fraternal organizations where men would have this form, this bond, and this brotherhood that dealt around commerce and about principles and laws and things like that. By the time Joseph Smith came into the world, these themes were all over early America. Benjamin Franklin popularized masonry here in the United States. So by the time Joseph Smith could feed himself, the Masonic lodges in America were essentially fraternal organizations aimed at making men stronger, pure, successful, and a force to fight against tyranny. And what they would do is they would take a new member in and they would initiate him. You've heard of going into the Mormon temple to do initiatory work? Well, that's where they got the initiate. They would take an initiator in, into the lodge, and they would introduce him to a series of rites, and they would go through, and that person, that initiate, would learn this rite, and then he would climb up and learn that rite, and then he would climb up, rise in his knowledge, and learn that one, and then rise in his knowledge and learn that one. Joseph Smith does the same thing with the priesthoods. Aaronic priesthood, first one. Aaronic priesthood, second. Melchizedek priesthood, first one. Melchizedek priesthood, second. All the way up. It's the same model that the Masons had, and he implemented that. So Masonry was a wonderful incubator. Uh, I mean, was wonderfully incubated in the United States, and uh, there... They, these Americans who wanted to have some security called themselves brothers. Uh, and uh, they became, without a national religion here in America, masonry and their lodges became a perfect place for men to learn morals and practice valor and to become something bigger, bigger than themselves. So I want to tell you what happened with masonry, just to summarize quickly, and then we'll go on to part two next week. 
Masonry got a little bit highfalutin in its head and in its power, and it decided that it had to kill a guy whose last name was Morgan because he was going to reveal their secrets in a book. This was in the 1800s. So they kill Morgan, and it gets out that the Masons were the ones who killed one of their own. And that caused the beginning of the end of Masonry in America and its powerful grip in the 19th century. Morgan left a wife behind, and guess who's one of Joseph Smith's first polygamous wives? Morgan, who was murdered. And Joseph Smith not only took his wife now, who he, he was now dead as one of his polygamous wives, Joseph also took the Freemasonry and he employed it into the ceremonies. In March the 15th of 1842, it says in uh, Joseph's um, journal in the evening, I received the first degree in Freemasonry in the Nauvoo Lodge. And then uh, the next day it reads, I was with the Masonic Lodge and rose to the sublime degree. So he enters uh, the time when he became a Mason, clothed in the Masonic garb of white underclothing, a robe, a sash, an apron of fig leaves, and a cap. Joseph Smith was led through the Masonic rituals over a two-day period of time. But here's the point. Less than two months after having gone through these Masonic rites and rituals, on May 4th of 1842, Joseph came up with and introduced his own rites. He called the Temple Endowment Ceremony in Nauvoo. You can find that in History of the Church, Volume 5, page 1 through 2. I'm, we're going to end there and open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. I know there are millions of people who have joined the LDS Church or who, when they became of age, went to the temple. And I know millions of them said, what the hell is going on in here? Okay. They were, and you are one of them. And what was speaking to you was sense and reason and something that said, Jesus is not in the building, okay? And I don't care if Joseph incorporated aspects of Jesus in that rite and ritual. It is antithetical to the good news where the veil of the temple was ripped down and the gospel was available to everybody free of charge based on faith. Question your thoughts when you went through and go and look up the history at utlm.org and we'll go from there. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. First time callers, please. LDS callers, if at all possible, turn down your television sets. And uh, before we go to Andrew in Jeffersonville, Indiana, and Joe and Sandy, uh, I want to say this. Uh, Aletheia Ministries is a 501c3 tax-exempt corporation. If, if you are in a position where you're needing a tax-exempt uh, donation, which you can write off from your taxes, this is the year where that happens quite a bit, and you're looking for a ministry, consider us. The Lord leads you in another way. By all means, go that way. But if you're looking for something and you want to uh, help contribute to a ministry to keep it going, then consider Aletheia Ministries. You can go to hotm.tv for more information. You can also write to the address there on the screen. There's also a phone number, which I'm sure will come up during the show. Question here, do the LDS believe that they are direct descendants of Jesus' bloodline? I don't believe so, no. Next one, if Mormons believe Christ died for our sins on the cross, why then don't they have crosses on their churches? Um, Really, the answer is uh, because they're not Christian, and they believe that the cross was the place that, that he lost his life, But the garden was the place where he actually atoned for sin. And so they don't have any real respect for the cross. 
Um, and then it really became culturally popular to disdain the cross when the Catholics moved into the Salt Lake Valley and started uh, demonstrating their faith by their crosses. The Mormons, of course, went the opposite direction and said, no crosses ever again. So it has some, it has some cultural implications and it has some doctrinal Im implications uh, uh, involved. Okay, let's go to uh, Andrew. Let's go to Joe in Sandy, Utah. Joe, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes. Joe, you're on the air. Okay, I don't hear anybody. You can't hear me? Can you hear me, Joe? Yes, I can hear you. Well, I'm the host. Yeah, how are you? Is this Sean? It is. Yes, uh, good evening. Uh, I'm not an LDS, but uh, I've been studying uh, the life of Joseph Smith and uh, a little bit running into Brigham Young. In regards to Freemasonry, could what did the Freemasons think, or did they accept, or did they adopt, or did they authorize Mormonism? And could Joseph Smith be a Freemason and a prophet at the same time? Well, uh, I don't really know what the Freemasons thought. There's conjecture that it was the Freemasons who helped kill him at Carthage Jail, uh, but we don't know that. There's also conjecture that it was some of his own. Uh, members of the church that killed him because he had gone so out of hand by wrecking the printing press. So we don't really know. I know now if you talk to a Mason and you bring up Joseph Smith, they just laugh and say, he took everything from us. And so, yeah. well, you is, have is no... there anything really wrong with Joseph Smith copying the methods of the Freemasons in regards to structuring his religion? I don't yeah. think he's the one and only religion, but I, in my study, I think it was more of a, he was more of an evangelist it's wrong because in the Christian world when Christ died and I don't know if you're a Christian or not but when Christ died that opened the way for all men and women and children to come to God by virtue of just their faith what Joseph did was he took the Masonic uh, temple rites and he made them mandatory to be able to live with God after this life yeah I agree with that mandatory part yeah because I find it the religion to be, regardless of how it does some good. I find it is, is a very synthetic religion. Yeah. That that, that is uh, it, it, it barred here, barred there, and then but then it said it came from God. When yeah. Well, that's, that's part of the problem Islam. too. Is that he says it was direct revelation from God? I mean, and you can just see his revelations were a matter of convenience. Yeah. The also one more question, real quick. I noticed that uh, several readings that I've done said that uh, Brigham Young had met uh, at the church at Nauvoo while uh, Joseph Smith was someplace else and that they had spoken tongues. Now, wasn't that a, a uh, trait of other religions at that time, speaking in tongues? Yeah, they, there's a history of speaking in tongues in the Mormon church in the early years. So they completely done away with that. They, down, they downplay that completely today. So that was never a basis of any revelation or of prophecy from the Lord or anything like that. The speaking in tongues? Yeah. No, they just believe that they believe in the gift of tongues, and that's one of their articles of faith. 
and they, they just seem to practice back in the early years of the church. Yeah, okay, well, I wish I had more time with you because I'm studying it, and I find Joseph Smith to be likable, but not a prophet, but I find Brigham Young to be a, a villain. Yeah, he was, he was pretty bad. And I think you, I think you've kind of summed it up. He, he was charismatic. Joseph was charismatic, uh, but keep, keep. I mean, well, we'll talk about that another time, Joe. God bless you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye bye. Question here: If Mormons claim to be the only true church, why do they have so many secrets? The Bible says the truth shall set you free. Yeah, it's a good question. I, they have secrets because they're not the true church. Are you guys making statements with these? Are these questions? Or are these just statements that you want to get across? All right, let's go to a uh, first-time caller again, Mike. Mike in Ogden, Utah, your first-time caller. You're on the air. Mike is not there. We're going to go to Andrew in Jacksonville, Indiana. Andrew, you're on the air. Hey, Sean, thanks for having me, man. Uh, uh, I got a comment and a question of, of the comment for the LDS. Um, I was listening about the temples and such and such. And I was talking to some LDS later this week, and they were telling me, you know, about how to get sealed in the temple for salvation. But really, it's not all about the temple. It's all about Jesus Christ. And for all those who are listening, it's just only by faith and, and faith in Him alone. Yeah. And uh, um, But uh, my question is, um, how in the world uh, do LDS say that um, the way is uh, to follow the prophets? I mean... And uh, how do you be qualified as a prophet in their eyes? I mean, like, it's something I don't understand. Like, how did Thomas Monson get to that position? He I got to that position because he came to the rescue! To the rescue! Thomas Monson! <laughs> prophet! To the rescue! Uh, no, I... Sorry. I, uh, it, it really is just a matter of who lives long enough and works their way up in seniority to be the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And then when the prophet dies, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, even though they say, well, it's really by revelation, it's always him who becomes the prophet. That's well, how it the happens. Thing is, though, the thing is, though, it's just that um, they were talking about how you had to be, like, sinless, right? You know, you have to be without sin. Um, I have not, in my life as a Christian, I have, I don't even know how not to sin. Yeah. Like, no. even though I hate it, I hate my sin, but, you know, I, I realize that, you know, when I do, I'm being convicted and ask God to forgive me, um, you know, and then try to move on. But I can't see myself as a sinless person or live like a sinless person. I would go insane. It's just, and I keep telling them about that. It's just like, how do we all do this? You know, well, you know why, Andrew? Because your perspective is a biblical perspective. You're honest enough with yourself to say that you, in your best day, your mind and your heart, even your attitude toward people who annoy you is sinful. On your best day. The Mormons have been trained the opposite. So yeah. they actually think, I mean, I just talked to somebody recently, and I've got to verify this, but there's a belief that goes around this town that Joseph Smith was made a god while he was alive, alive here on this earth before he died. Now I want to see if that's written somewhere, but I've heard this from, from good report from people who are high up in the church in this town that they believe Joseph Smith was a god before he took his last breath. Yeah. I don't know how they do uh, it. Yeah, you know, um, if you, do, I mean, I'm a big apologetics person. Like, I love researching on occult and such. Um, 
but you know Mormonism is is like a it's like a rip off version of Pelagianism. Do you know what Pelagianism is? It's kind of like it's biblical Christianity a little bit. Well, it's not. It's a heresy. It's ruled out as heresy. They yeah. think uh, they believe in the gospel, but they believe that they're out without sin and they don't need Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right yeah. about that. I think that's a good parallel. Yeah. Hey, Andrew, thanks for the call. We got people waiting. All right, man. Thank you very much. God bless. God bless you. Bye bye. You know, it's really tough, though, to really resist some of this stuff because walking through a bookstore the other day and look at here how to qualify for the celestial kingdom today. <laughs> Another fine piece of literature from a faithful Latter day Saint, James B. Cox. How to qualify for the celestial kingdom today. I'm surprised this wasn't right next. I'm surprised this wasn't right next to another great LDS book I saw, Repentance Made Easy. So uh, anyway, we're going to David in Salt Lake City, first time caller who's LDS. David, you're on Heart of the Matter. I am? You're on the air, my friend. Uh, what am I watching there? Because I'm watching you talking to someone right now. That's because there's a delay. Oh, you okay. Your, you need to turn your TV down. Okay, hold on. I'm trying to push this mute there. Okay. Um, I was going to, I was um, in doubt, or I went to the temple back in 1887, 1987, I mean. <laughs> no, 1987, when they had those punishments. Yeah. And um, I was just kind of backing you up on that and letting you know, I was terrified yeah. when, when I went through that first time. And I was, that was, you know, to go on a mission. I, I didn't want to go. You know, that just terrified me. And, um, yeah, it, it, was, it was just a very bad experience for me. What advice were you given, David? Did you share those, those feelings with anybody? And then what advice were you given? Jeez, uh, I don't remember because this was a long time ago. Um, yeah. So I don't really remember. I was really confused. And, and uh, I think uh, my brother, my older brother, he would just say, well, you just got to keep going back and back. Yeah. And, and eventually... It'll sink in, and yeah. and uh, it'll you'll start to feel better, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> you know, and, uh, I never have. That that's what they say. You know, you just need to keep going. It's just like saying, hey, listen, if you keep stabbing yourself in the stomach with a knife, after a while you get used to it, and it's really an acquired taste. If you go and sit there long enough, and you watch them cutting their their throats and cutting their guts out, and and doing all this ritualistic, strange, non-biblical stuff. You do it enough, you're going to think, yeah, I think it's inspired. Yeah, well, that's what it is. I mean, because I had stopped for a long time, and then I'd gone back to the church, and I got uh, my temple recommend, oh, four years ago, uh -huh. and went back. And they had changed two or three things. Yeah. They've changed in there. But it, it was it's still ritual, and that's what really turned me back up. What was, what was I thinking coming back? Yeah. Because... <laughs> Uh, it was just very, very ritual, and I thought, you know, Jesus Christ, when he, I don't remember reading anything in the Bible about him being ritual. No. Um, None of it. So that was a, a real big turnoff. Um, hey, great call, David. Thanks so much. There's one more thing, if I could squeeze it in. Yeah. Um, a couple weeks ago, a guy called bragging about uh, Mormons' humanitarian efforts and all that. Uh-huh. And I wasn't able to get my call in, but I, what I wanted to say to that guy or anyone out there, uh, you know, when you brag about it, it negates the good you do. Yeah. You know, and they do a lot of that. They brag and they brag and they brag. And oh, I, I just wanted to get that out there. That's a really good point, my friend. God bless you, David. Thanks for okay. calling. You too. 
Bye-bye. Right. You know, someone else pointed out something to me about that call about the humanitarian efforts. Uh, I think they, they can show, I don't know who told me this, uh, the amount of money the LDS Church has given to humanitarian aid relative to the amount of money they take in, I mean, over the course of the last, like, 50 years, relative to the amount of money they take in in a month. And that it, it's still in, in, insignificant relative. So what David was saying is they really tout it. They really play it up. Oh, we've helped, we've give, we give. But relative to what they bring in in a single month in money, it's, it's really nothing. That's what I've been told. I would like them to show me differently. Have the LDS show us differently. But we'll see. We're going to Caleb and Tuella, first-time caller. Caleb, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, how's it going? Good, Caleb. How are you? I'm good. Hey, uh, I catch your episode quite a bit. Every time I'm flipping through the channels and you're on there, I go ahead and stick and listen to you. Awesome. Yeah, I, I like a, a lot of what you have to say, and you have lots of good facts and good reasoning behind it. I, I was a Mormon growing up, um, but I fell away for my own personal reasons. Um, but my kids are uh, they're in the Mormon church, and they get grown up kind of fine, and I don't understand why you kind of belittle the Mormon church a bit. Well, growing up fine is, is a, a good thing. You know, the Demolays and the Eastern Stars, they raise up fine kids too. The, 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 the 4-H clubs, the Boy Scouts right. of America, they all raise up fine kids too. Uh, the, the Hitler's, uh, Hitler's youth were probably many fine kids too. But the, here's, the pro <laughs> here's the problem, Caleb. Okay. Does it take a kid, does it take a family, does it take a grown man, and does it lead him to see himself as a sinner and in desperate need for a savior by the name of Jesus Christ? Does Mormonism do that where they say, I cannot be saved no matter what I do, no matter what I add, I cannot be saved unless I receive Jesus Christ and his blood Period. End of story. Done. And they don't do that. See, well, I, and that's the problem that I have with them, Caleb. Well, I know, but don't you think it would get further people if you're preaching your religion to them instead of trying to, trying to get down on another one? Wouldn't you rather preach God's word instead of trying to tell who's, who's wrong and right and just well, preaching what you think's right? It's really tough for some people to hear God's word if they don't have something to really compare it to. Many Latter-day Saints, I can sit up here and I can say, you know, Jesus is our Savior. And they say, yes, he is. And they say, Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he is. He died for our sins. Yes, he did. And he died on the cross. Oh, he did. And, and, and he's, our, he's the way you get to heaven. Yes, he is. But if, it, but if I say, but wait a minute. You also say you have to go to a temple, pay tithing, obey the Sabbath day, keep the word of wisdom, do this, 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 and this. And then you are worthy of Jesus' blood. And they'll say, oh, well, that's true. And so then what we have is the reason I compare and contrast. So they can see that there is a difference between the two. got to understand. If I wasn't in Utah, I wouldn't be doing this show. <laughs> well, I understand that. I just don't understand why you're not more concerned on preaching the word of God instead of preaching against another religion. I just told you why. Well, all right. Love to you, brother. All right. Take care, Caleb. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to Doug from Layton, Utah. He's LDS. Doug, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, hi, Sean. How you doing? I'm doing well, Doug. How are you? Good, good, good. Thanks. Hey, just real quick, I never heard uh, you or any of uh, or many of the uh, Christians explain chapter.
chapter 29 of Isaiah particularly. And I was just wondering, you know, because it talks about the sealed book. It talks about it being uh, the dead speaking from the dust. It talks about uh, the uh, people with uh, drawing near to the Lord with their mouth but not honoring him because of the precepts of men and the marvelous work and so on. Then it gets down to uh, verse 17, and it says, Is it not yet a very little while? And Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest. What do you think that means? I don't know. I have to read it in context. I have to study it. I have to see what it says in, in the Hebrew. I have to look at what it says 20 chapters ahead and 20 chapters behind. And then i got to come back and respond on the show what it means. Oh, but I can yeah, tell you okay. this. Well, I can I tell you this. You might have already done that. I can tell you this. I haven't already done it. I have years ago, but... My brain is very small, and it can only hold so much information, Doug. But I can tell you this. It in no way speaks, was Isaiah speaking of anything to do with the charlatan Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon, or Mormonism today. Okay? I can promise you that. Okay, Doug? You can promise me that, but, uh, but you haven't studied it yet. So no, I have studied it, but I just can't articulate a really sound... I think I would be foolish to try to do it right now when sure, I don't have sure. my facts all there. Let me get my oh, facts I, there and I I'll I thought look. you might be familiar with it because it's a reference to the temples. But uh, anyway, uh, you answered my question. That's what I wanted to know, whether you were familiar with it or not. Hopefully, Yeah, yeah I'm familiar with it, but not ready to articulate my defense. Thanks. Okay, Doug. God bless you. Oh, brother. All right, let's go to Peter in Loveland, Colorado. I know you guys sometimes think that I'm being kind of rude, but I know these guys. I know what's going through Doug's, oh boy, I almost said something really bad here. I know what's going through Doug's head, so I just have to take it, and I have to go, and I'll read the Isaiah passage, and next week we'll start off the show and tell you what it's about. Peter in Loveland, Colorado. Peter, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hi, Sean. Hi, Peter. Hi, Sean. Uh, I love your show. Kudos again. Uh, did you hear about the story? on AOL about the earthquake in Haiti. Um, I guess it was a hurricane. Yeah, it was an earthquake, excuse me. And the Mormon temple, or the stake down there, I guess it was, was able to hold 200 people, and they only let in members only, and they only let 36 people ride out the storm while many of the local people were pushed outside the gates and had to stay outside the gates. Did you hear that story? I didn't hear it. I'd love to see it, though. You just got to go to, like, Haiti Earthquake uh, Mormon AOL, and there'll be pictures of everything, and, and there'll be uh, interviews with some of the people that were in the church. In fact, one of the uh, Mormon mothers, her, a 25-year-old lady who sought shelter there, she said she thinks that the Mormon-only policy is wrong, but she resigned to her role as a grateful beneficiary and doesn't question the authority of the bishop. Wow. So Wow, yeah, that is a great quote, Peter. We'll check that out next week. I'll try to do something on it. Okay. Hey, thanks for the insights. Thanks, brother. Take place. Take place. Take care. Bye. Oh, boy. I got to stop. stop those schnapps before the show. Just kidding. We're going to Stephen in Salt Lake City. Stephen, you're on Heart of the Matter. Oh, hey. How's it going, Sean? Good, Stephen. How are you? Um, it's, uh, I'm great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I have... Um, I guess I have a couple of questions, actually. Um, I'm fascinated by your show. Uh, I've never seen a show like it, uh, especially 
um, one that's produced in Utah before, so I'm a huge admirer. I have a, a first a very simple question for you. Uh-huh. Um, you are an, an ex-Mormon, correct? Yeah. So are, do you, what is your denomination now, your religious denomination? Uh, never denominational. Okay, but you would consider yourself a Christian? Yes, absolutely. A follower of, of Yeshua, Jesus, yes. Uh, okay, so then the, the, the second question that I have is really, um, what is it that makes... Christianity in general any more rational or reasonable or believable than Mormonism? Well, if, if we're just going to go by ration, reason, facts, kind of a scientific method, just based off that, I'm not going to go into my subjective personal beliefs and things, but just based on comparing the two on a, on a rational, reasonable way, Christianity follows a book that has historical significance, it has genetic proofs, it has linguistic proofs, it has actual places of, that you can go and read about in this ancient manuscript created by, by dozens and dozens of different writers. We can go back to Jerusalem and see those towns, even see some of those very places. And so at least we have some, some concrete proof that the Bible, whether you believe it's true or not, that the Bible is a historical document. Okay, Mormonism, so follow, Mormonism, the Book of Mormon, has none of that. None. Okay, okay, okay. So, so you're saying that the Bible has more historical foundation and the Book of Mormon is entirely fabricated. Yes, that's, if, okay, if we're talking so, about a rational, reasonable, uh, just scientific approach to comparing the two, yes, that's what I would say. Okay, now then the next question is, why is a rational and reasonable approach... Um, uh, uh, is a rational and reasonable approach even a worthwhile endeavor to disproving Mormonism and uh, proving uh, whatever other denomination of Christianity that isn't Mormonism? Or right. is this rational defense simply a cover-up for the fact that all religion is based on irrationality? Well, that's, that's uh, Stephen, that's a topic you and I would have to have a lot more time than one minute left. And maybe you can call next week and we can talk about that. I don't okay. find the faith I pursue today irrational. I, I, I find the faith that I pursue today uh, founded in rational thought. And so we oh, would I differ see. there. Okay, so you're saying that Christianity is an entirely reasonable religion and it's scientifically and historically verifiable. No, I'm not saying that whatsoever. But I am saying at least the, the, the document that we use as our guide has a history, has evidences, and Mormonism does not. That's from that perspective. Everything else we'd have to debate more at a time. Okay, good, thanks good so call. much. We'll talk about it again. Okay, thanks. Uh, we are going to wrap it up. Remember this coming Monday, Girl at Gateway Theaters. It's the premiere. Join us if you would. We need your input on what you think about the film. And uh, next week we're going to continue on with Temple Part 2. In the last month of this year, we got four more uh, shows left. So God bless you. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. H-O-T-M. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my. I'm gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my. Gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna break. I'm gonna break my. Gonna break my rusty cage and run. I'm gonna.
break my, gonna break my rusty cage.